0: let's go to chapter 11 of the book of John in verse 55 and it says and the Passover of the Jews was near and boy it is near to us seven days starting with today and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves wow do we have to purify ourselves before the Passover, brethren? We're going to see what the Word of God tells us. We find a beautiful scripture, brethren, in, uh, because this Passover is just the narrow gate that opens to us the way to eternal life with a story of love. God is love, and we're going to celebrate the greatest expression of love to give his life for his brothers, for his friends, which Jesus Christ did for us, until the last drop, last drop of his body came out, and then came water. Absolutely empty himself in love to rescue us first, and the rest of the world, brethren. That's just a marvelous way. So the Passover is the greatest expression of love that there is. And as we have to correspond to that love, then we keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which he said before dying many times, if you love me, keep my commandments, which third transgression cost his death. So we respond with love by keeping that feast also, staying away from sin and growing and filling up ourselves with unleavened bread, which is Jesus Christ himself, our being one with him, there is a message about being one, about oneness in all these feasts. And then Pentecost, of course, is the, the formalization, if you can, I can use that word of that marriage with that contract of love, which is expressing the obedience is written in our hearts and our minds as we prepare for the great culmination of love with the marriage of the Lamb on the day of trumpets so it's one chapter of love after the other and then the love continues when God shows love to the rest of humanity for whom he pay also with the feast of tabernacles and then with the last great day so we're invited to enter by that narrow gate as first fruits and celebrate the Passover brethren the greatest expression of love In the universe, we are going to partake of it, and we better be aware of it so we can take it in a worthy manner. So people went to purify themselves. What do we find in the scripture concerning us today? We find in the first epistle of the apostle John. In the first epistle, chapter 3. Let's go there, brethren. First epistle of John Chapter 3, and let's look at this beautiful scripture. It says, Behold, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, or on us, that we, sh- that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because he did not know him, beloved. Now we are children of God. We know we are being begotten, and are, and, and the, the youth in the church, they are being set apart. And the promise is for them, and we have this beautiful news of your people being baptized. And it just fills, with, fills us with joy. And he says, Verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's it, we will see his glory. We have glorious bodies that are similar to his glorious body because we have been begotten by the same Father and we are born again in the Spirit, so we'll have these glorious spirit bodies that will be like his. And that will be the perfect fulfillment of oneness in the Spirit. When the flesh will not be there anymore, we can be perfectly one with Jesus Christ That's why the marriage of the Lamb takes place after the sounding of the seventh trumpet, where we can be one with him, and we will be perfectly one with each other. And the Passover reflects exactly that. How many times did Christ say on that last Passover in the book of John, you should love each other like I have loved you. And he speaks of love so many times. Speaking of his love, by shedding his, his blood for us as a proof of that immense love. And the culmination will be, of course, with that marriage of the Lamb. But we have to be preparing for Passover, making sure that we are learning now the lessons that will be fulfilled, that we are learning to be one with each other, to take the Passover in a worthy manner, and to be one with Jesus Christ. Even from now, we'll see some points that will help us, brethren, to meditate on this marvelous, marvelous mystery that has been revealed to us, which the, the world does not understand. So he says here in John, 1 John 3, verse 3, and everyone who has this hope, the hope we are talking about, purifies himself. Exactly what people were doing in the days of Jesus Christ before Passover. So we have to purify ourselves right now in preparation for that Passover, which is the beginning of that marvelous plan of God that only the Church of God understands because we practice his feasts. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's the only way... We can be one with him, brethren. So, how can we purify ourselves, brethren? Let's, le- let's see a few indications that we can put into practice these days, now that is so close that we take it so seriously, brethren. In that same epistle, of first epistle of John, in chapter 1 and verse 8, we read, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You realize, brethren, that John is including himself here? He's the beloved disciple of God. And is confessing here, and we all have to confess, now that we prepare for Passover, how seriously we have to examine ourselves to take that Passover in a worthy manner. Because when we are spirit beings, we'll be perfectly pure. And today we have to learn. We are in the school, so we are perfectly pure when that seventh trumpet sounds. And we can marry Christ and be perfectly one with him. And now we are preparing for Passover when we take that bread, and that bread becomes part of us, which is a powerful way for Christ to transfer to us the message, I want to be one with you, and you Should be one with me. That bread will become part of us as we take it that evening. It's just a figure of the marvelous mystery of God that is being revealed to us, brethren. If we say that we have no sin, and John is including himself. So do we have reasons to purify ourselves? Sure, we can read it here. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So none of us here, starting with me, can go now straight into the Passover and say, I have no sin, or I have not sinned in this last year. We do not practice sin, brethren, but we stumble from time to time, and get up, repent, and go back to the narrow path, and continue walking in it, which is the Ten Commandments of God written in our hearts and minds. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And here is the beloved disciple including himself in this, brethren. That's pretty amazing. And he says, and the truth is not in us. If we confess, listen to that word, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you, that you may not, you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours, ours only, but also for the whole world. Eventually, it's already paid for. So how can we then take this day's words? Then, seriously, the first thing we have to do is examine ourselves, which is an exhortation that we find, brethren, and you know it very well, at the end of the letter of Second Corinthians on chapter, chapter 13 and verse 5. Chapter 13 and verse 5. 2 Corinthians. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? That's what the Passover means, brethren unless indeed you are disqualified. For I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. That's quite a serious statement. We have a warning, brethren. If we go back to practice and live in sin, we'll be disqualified. And he who stands, let, let him watch, lest he falls. So we have to be in a continual state of alert, dear brethren. So we also find the exhortation in chapter 11 of the book of First Corinthians, when, God, when the apostle Paul gives us instructions on how to keep the Passover in a worthy manner. Chapter 11, verse 27, First Corinthians 11:27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks, the, this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. What will be an unworthy manner? If we have sinned, if we have not repented from it, brethren, we'll take it in an unworthy manner. Remember, we have to be perfectly clean to be one with him in the marriage of the Lamb. And we have to be learning those lessons right now on examining ourselves deeply, asking God to help us, to see us as he sees us. So if we're not clean, we're taking it in an unworthy manner. We're taking it lightly. We don't realize what it took for Christ to to renounce for a time to his divine power and glory to become a human being and die the death. He died. We have to take that very seriously, brethren. Then in verse 28 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians says, But let a man examine himself, of course, everybody, ladies too, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup but after examining ourselves. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment. Instead of eating and drinking justification by a repentant heart, we eat judgment. That means condemnation, because we are still in sin. And that's our responsibility, brethren, before God to examine ourselves, to take that bread and that wine in a worthy manner, respecting what it means, not discerning the Lord's body, not being aware of what it means, what it took, and what it takes to partake of it in a worthy manner only through repentance and cleansing by his blood. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you. That has consequences, brethren. It's not a light matter in the eyes of God to take the body and the blood of his son lightly in an irresponsible way without examining ourselves seriously in his presence. And for this reason, many are weak and sick among you. Remember that body among other things, represents the healing of our sicknesses. Well, it represents more than that, as we will see as we go a little bit further beyond this point. And if we don't discern it, we don't have that faith, then we suffer the consequences. and says many, many, because there were a lot of divisions and contentions in the Church of Corinth. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Even they died, brethren. This is not a light matter. If we don't examine ourselves properly in the presence of God, we might die. Is that serious? Passover is not a light thing, brethren. For if we would judge ourselves we will not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So we will suffer the consequences and probably then we will understand that we should have taken it more seriously. Now, it's interesting that take repentance, brethren, and we read in the book of John, first, first epistle of John, that we have to confess. We have to acknowledge what we have done. And we think we haven't done anything wrong in this last year. We're liars and make God a liar. So something has to be changed. And that's what the, clearly the teaching is. So how can we examine ourselves, brethren, honestly, Let's remember one thing, brethren. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 28, look of Proverbs, chapter 28 and verse 13, we find this scripture. Proverbs 28, verse 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So we have to ask ourselves, are we hiding our sins? Are we afraid to really acknowledge something we have done or are doing? He who covers his sins will not prosper. There will be no spiritual growth. But whoever confesses and forsakes, that means departs, repents, will have mercy, will be forgiven, and his sin will be covered. The King David, you know, he had a problem for a while. Let's read. You know, when the prophet Nathan came to David after the sin he committed, The child of that union he had with Bathsheba was already born. That means David had spent at least nine or more months covering his own sin. He had not acknowledged what he did. He was a chain of sins. Now, I'm not here to judge King David, brethren. He's been judged already by God. He will raise in the first resurrection. He will be king over the 12 tribes of Israel. I know he had to condemn him. But God allows us to use these examples for our own good and our growth. So when you think about it, he committed a series of sins. You know them. I'm not going to describe everything here. We have been explained those recently even by Mr. McNair. He, he did uh, Jonathan McNair. He did quite a description of what Those sins were. But he was covering, he didn't want to acknowledge it. Has that happened to us? Maybe. And he didn't want to confess it. Until the prophet Nathan came to him. And you know, he wrote that experience in Psalm 32. Let's read it, brethren. Psalm 32, start in verse 1. Psalm 32, verse 1, it says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Repeat, Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Remember what it takes to confess it. We have to articulate before God, not like the Catholics do it, brother. To God from the heart, you know, a contrite spirit, a humble heart he will not reject. We have that warranty from him written by, inspired by, through David. He says, verse 2, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That's the state we need to be, This coming Friday evening, brethren, after having been diligent in examining ourselves, and he says, "And whose spirit, and in whose spirit there is no guile, Uh, not trying to deceive himself. We cannot deceive God. He can see perfectly through us, brethren." Who says that the grave? And the haters are before the Lord, how much more the hearts of men. Right from his throne in the third heaven, God looks at us and he looks straight through our hearts. He knows what's in in there, brethren. And then, look what happened to David. Verse 3. When I kept silent, you see, he didn't want to acknowledge what he had done. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. God started putting pressure, you know. You are hiding it, I'm going to make you sing, you know, because he's love. He doesn't want us to be lost. So he puts pressure on us. He allows consequences to happen, so we open our eyes. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groaning all day Long. He had no peace of mind and of heart either. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. God was putting pressure and putting pressure. He was preparing him for his encounter with Nathan. And remember, many other kings, when a prophet came to tell them their sins, they went against the prophet And some of them even put them in prison or killed them. David was ready to repent. But God prepared his heart in his love. He put pressure on him. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into drought of summer. Pause. Selah means pause. And then comes, I acknowledged my sin. You say, I'm not going to hide it anymore. I acknowledge my sin to you, exactly what John tells us to do ourselves. In my iniquity, I have not hidden. You know, this is not well translated. I, sometimes translators, they don't fully understand what repentance is. Here, it should be translated, in my iniquity, I did not hide. If you say, I have not hidden, means that he had confessed it before. That's not what it means. What he means, this is a wrong translation here in the New King James. If you look at the comments in other translations, what he says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity, I did not hide. That means I decided not to hide it any longer. That's how it makes sense, this verse, when you read it, brethren. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. is essential to acknowledge it and to confess it. So this is very serious. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time where you may be found. Okay. Now, that's an interesting thing that might happen to us, brethren. Now, there is another problem, too, that sometimes... We're sinning by ignorance. We don't know we're committing a sin and that doesn't cause that sin not to be a sin. A sin by ignorance is still a sin. It will have consequences. I'm going to prove it to you. And I feel you know that. So we have some problems when we examine ourselves. The first one is we, sometimes we acknowledge it right away and confess it and repent. But sometimes, like even King David, And probably ourselves, we try to hide it. And then there is no prosperity spiritual when that happens and until God makes us to confess it. But there is another problem. Sometimes there are sins that we don't know that there are sins. Sins by ignorance. And let's see how David also prays to God concerning that in chapter 19 of the book of Psalms. Look at it. Chapter 19. It says, here towards the end, verse 12. Chapter 19, verse 12. Who can understand his errors? Interesting. Sometimes we commit errors and others realize it and we don't see them, brethren. And when we are corrected, if we are humble, we will love it. If we are proud, we will hate it. That's written also. That's reactions that are clearly described by God's word. Don't correct a proud man. He will hate you. Correct the wise, he will love you. That's what sometimes we need someone to tell us, and hopefully in a loving way, although it doesn't always happen that way. And I remember Dr. Murray; he said, He used to say, well, even if they say with a bad attitude, we still can learn from it. And that was the attitude of Dr. Meredith. Sometimes when we're not corrected in the way we would like to be corrected, then we do not accept it. And that doesn't take away from the correction to be truth. So he says, who can, again, Psalm 19, verse 12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. You know, this is not a good translation either. I have checked that in other translations. It says, cleanse me for those that, from those that are hidden to me. A secret sin might be like someone who watches pornography in, in secret, but he knows that's a sin. It's a secret only to others, but not to himself. Here the context talking about uh, mistakes or sins we might be committed, committing that are hidden to our sight. We, we don't know it's a sin. That's what the context clearly indicates. He says because it starts by the question, "Who can understand his own errors?" Claims me from the translation should be from those that are hidden to me that I don't know, but I still sinning by ignorance. And then he says. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. I mean, from pride. Great pride is pride who keeps us from acknowledging our own errors, errors even to ourselves, or when someone else pointed them to us. Is pride? And it's interesting. He mentions it here. Let them not have dominion over me. Speaking of pride, he says it in plural because this is a a, a plural of that means the importance of the great sin that pride is. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless. Meaning if I am humble. And, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. So David is praying to God. And I have all the translation. He says, cleanse me for those that are hidden to me. That means I might be sinning by ignorance. And he knew that the law said it very clearly. Let's go to chapter 5 of the book of Leviticus, dear brethren. Chapter 5 and verse 17 of the book of Leviticus. Chapter 5, verse 17. Leviticus 5:17. 17. If a person sins, that means transgression of the law, And commits any of those things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord. Remember Christ said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill. You know, these principles are still in force today. I'm going to prove it to you right there in the New Testament. Exactly the same principle. And it says, If a person sins and commits any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he does not know it, yet he is guilty. That's what David was asking God. Show me those that are hidden to me. He wanted to be perfectly clean. And we should be doing that too. Using that prayer of David, asking God, Father, I have repented of things I have done. Why still you to show me, I want you to show me, I have, if I'm sinning by ignorance, I'm committing a sin that I don't know that is a sin. And it says here, though he does not know it, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity. I, I remember often when I, we go on trips, you know, and people have known our message and want to be baptized and, are full of zeal, and said, you know, but I was baptized already, you know. I, I've been baptized. Why do I need to be baptized again? And I I answered, I answered them, my friend, you were baptized by immersion. Yes. Were you keeping the Sabbath? No, I didn't know it. I said, okay, let me read something to you. So I, I read this. He said, you were not keeping the Sabbath. But you were still sinning. By ignorance, you are guilty of it. Your baptism was not valid. You need to repent of that and change. And if you are really repentant, not only of the Sabbath breaking, also the feasts of God. You know, if Egypt doesn't come to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, in the margin of this Bible, New King James, it says, this is the sin of Egypt, you know. I think it says something else, but it's a transgression of God's law. People that have not kept the feast and the days of unleavened bread, there are high days, first day and last day, by ignorance. And they think, oh, I was already baptized. I said, no, you are sinning by ignorance, my friend. You need to repent. And they fully understand it. When I read this to them, and let's finish here, it's amazing. Yeah. It said, he shall bear his iniquity. He said, you continue to be in sin after baptism. Therefore, if baptism is to cleanse us from sins, and you still are bearing the iniquity, your baptism was not valid. It didn't fulfill his finality of his function. Verse 18. And he shall bring to the priest, here we are, fulfilling what John says. We have an advocate with the Father. So, here is exactly this and we see the fulfillment in the new covenant. And you shall bring to the priest thats it. you present before Jesus Christ. You know, a ram without blemish. Christ was the lamb and he was the priest. He fulfills both things. So here we see it beautifully presented with your value, valuation as a trespass offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him. Christ is our advocate. He will ask the father, This man or this woman is repenting, and God will forgive them. Exactly what we are being instructed by John in that first scripture that in the scripture that we studied. He shall make atonement for him regarding his ignorance, in which he erred and did not know it, and it shall be forgiven him. Verse nineteen. It is a trespass offering. He has certainly trespassed against the Lord. So even if it's by ignorance, still a sin. We need the help of God to understand and the diligence to study his word so we know and we understand so many aspects of his word that if we read just from time to time, If it's not for us what Christ said, not only by bread and man live, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God, and we do day by day until we more and more assimilate the mind of Christ, then he will reveal to us these things. But it takes diligent work, my dear brethren. So let's look at, at the book of Luke in chapter 12, and we see that principle applied by Jesus Christ. So we understand the examining of ourselves. Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, we see the proof that Christ didn't come to abolish the law. He came to give a fulfillment. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. If we know something is sin, we still do it we have more serious consequences. But he who did not know, here is the case, ignorance, yet committed things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few, but still consequences will be. And sometimes God allows them for us to wake up and say, hey, maybe I'm doing something wrong and I don't know. I need help. If we really ask God for it, he will show us, or we will send someone, a good friend, that would point something to us that we didn't want to accept. But here, you see that what was written in Leviticus 5.17. He said, But he who did not know yet committed things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few, but still there are consequences because is still responsible in spite of his ignorance. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. So, I think that those are useful things, brethren, to help us to seriously <laughs> examine ourselves and ask for help. Because we ourselves, by ourselves, sometimes don't detect the sins that we commit by ignorance. Others, I think, will be sharper in their observations than ourselves. And we should be ready to accept it and love whoever does it for us, because it's a great service. Otherwise, we continue to create consequences, brethren. So this feast, brethren, like I say, is a celebration of being one with Jesus Christ and being one with each other. You know how many times Christ repeated in the book of John on the last chapter there, chapter 13 through 17, how many times he said, love each other like I have loved you. And he was celebrating the Passover with them. So that aspect of being one with each other It's very important to God because we are the body of Christ. And if we, for example, Christ said, if you forgive the, the offenses, God will forgive you too. And that's one of the things we have to examine ourselves. Have I forgiven from my heart whoever has offended me? That's something very important to understand. Have I forgiven from my heart, or I still like to ruminate the offenses and recreate and bring them back to my mind and feel the victim and be the accuser of someone? God asks us to forget about it. Is that possible? Brethren, it is possible. When we don't entertain the thought of of an offense and we reject it continually, although it comes back to us, we reject it like a temptation that we don't want to think about it and ask God, please give me your heart. God forgives and he forgets. And I don't keep it, bring it back to my memory, but put it out. It comes the moment when it falls asleep unless I go and wake it up again. But it will fall asleep. And I will see the person who offended it I don't even think about it. That's the type of forgiveness we have to practice, brethren. Because some people say, I forgive, but I don't forget. We should forget. It's not impossible. When we stimulate the remembrance, it will come back to us with special effects, bigger than Hollywood. We can recreate an offense and make it much bigger than it was. Our imagination, like a famous French thinker, Blaise Pascal, is the... How do I translate that? It's the fall of the house, the folly. I mean, when a woman is very crazy, she, she's the crazy one in the house. She said, our imagination is the crazy one in this house. You know, it brings back things that should be bringing up. And those things should be kept out of our mind. And we practice bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. There is a moment where that thing falls asleep. And we don't even think about it, and we are free from it. That's true forgiveness. If we do not forgive, brethren, God will not forgive us. You can read that many places in the New Testament, especially in the book of Matthew, the first time Christ mentions it, when he speaks, when he teaches us the model of the prayer, forgives us our, forgive our sins as we forgive those that offend us. And he said, if you don't forgive those that offend you, God will not forgive you. So if we go to the Passover, and I'm still, you know, creating and remembering the offense, I'm still in sin. I'm not taking that Passover with true discernment of the body of Christ. Because we are the body of Christ. There are more meanings to that than we think, brethren. If we are not in harmony with each other, and there is another principle, I won't go into all those scriptures because you know them. He says, on one side, we have to really forgive and be at peace in our own mind and at peace with whoever has offended us. That's a commandment. And it's possible. Some people think it's not possible. It is. God gave us the power to bring thoughts captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And he has commanded us to forgive from the heart. He is not asking us that it's impossible. We can forgive from the heart. But we need to practice self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit, and bring that thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ, and it will fall asleep in the back of our memories. And we shouldn't go back there to dig and bring it back, which is a terrible thing to do, and that's in the book of Proverbs too. People like that have no peace of mind. They're always tormented. They're tormenting themselves. That's what it says the merciful makes mercy to his own soul because he forgets and he doesn't suffer anymore. The others bring, they keep the wound open, and there is no peace of mind like that. God brings us peace. So if, if we don't forgive from the heart, and we come to take that Passover, brethren, we are not taking it in a worthy manner, because we are the body of Christ. We eat from the same bread in unity, and we are not preparing ourselves to be the wife of Christ, to be imperfect, in spirit, when we have a spirit body, and we can be the wife of Christ and be one with each other. This really goes all the way to into eternity, brethren. This discipline that Christ asks us. The other thing is, <clears throat> and sometimes we do not forgive because of pride. And David says, deliver me from presumptuous sins, from pride, because I'm so proud I cannot forget and forgive. Who are we, brethren? to keep grudges against anyone. And then the other one is, he says, if you go and present your offering before the altar, and we come on the Passover to present an offering in a way, Christ himself offering himself for us, who has forgiven our sins, and I remember, or you remember, that someone has something against me. I offended someone, and because of my pride, I have not asked for forgiveness. That's very hard. Some people, they would do anything before they they acknowledge. You go to someone and say, "Please forgive me. I, I offended you in this occasion, and uh, I, I cannot be at peace with myself. Will you forgive me?" You know, that's an act of humility. And God expects us. If Christ is humble. Who are are we not to be humble? He said, learn from me who are a lowly spirit and meek. If we are not like him, and we go to the Passover, and we didn't have the, the guts to go and ask someone, please forgive me, I think I did something wrong to you, we would take it in an unworthy manner, because we are not discerning the body of Christ. And we are all the body of Christ. That's written in I I I read it to you. Let's go to First Corinthians chapter ten, I think it is. First Corinthians it says here chapter Here, chapter ten, verse fifteen. Chapter ten, verse fifteen we have this wonderful teaching here. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of the blessing which we bless it is not the communion of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break. We're going to do this Friday evening. It's not the communion of the body of Christ, I mean, all united, without grudges, without pride. For we being many, are one bread, and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. And he says, that is the the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So if we're not at peace and harmony with each other, we are not taking the Passover in a worthy manner because we're not discerning us as the body of Christ. We take it too lightly and keep grudges or are too proud to ask for forgiveness who we have offended. The other part is that the Passover is for us to be one with Jesus Christ and a condition is to be at peace with each other, to take the Passover in a worthy manner. I think I read often John chapter 6, brethren. I find it so powerful. I remember when I read this to my son the first time, when Christ starts speaking in such a strong language, brethren, he wanted to make an impact of the minds of those that would depart because they were not yet being called, and of those that were called, that they realized this is an amazing thing. And let's read it, chapter 6 of the book of John in verse 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that, it, that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give to the life of the world. The Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us to, his flesh to eat? Right, I find this funny, brethren, that's amazing. He, he speaks in such language, and they, they were astonished. And he wanted them to be astonished. At least they will not understand, but they will not forget. And I think it's for us to understand, really, what he means. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. (laughs) He makes it even stronger. And he keeps going, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Boy, he could make it more clear, brethren. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because on me. Is this, can be a stronger way to present to us that the Passover means that we should be one with Jesus Christ? When we eat that piece of bread, he said, this is my body. It represents him. Of course, he explained later on, these are spiritual things. But he can make sure, he wants to make sure with physical terms. So we could understand this is a great, amazing thing, that God wants us humans of the dust of the earth to be one with him and one with the Father. He wants to raise us to his rank of divinity. And he wants us to be one with his Son. And he repeats that over and over so he gets in our heads and our minds How great this thing is and how seriously we should take it. And he says, And as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. And then he says, This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is hard saying, who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? you understand really what I'm meaning by this. I came down from heaven, and I'm going to go back there, and you are going to see it. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that have, I have speak to you are spirit, and they are life. So, it's a spiritual message, but he put it in physical terms. So it would at least get into our heads what's the dimension of this amazing thing that God, the Father, when we repent and are cleansed by the blood of of Christ, he will beget us with his own spirit eternal spirit that has always existed. I think Dr Homerin mentioned that in his booklet about the human potential. When when God we have a young man who is just baptised, That spirit that came upon him, Benjamin, has always existed. It comes from God, whose name is the Eternal. He's the only one who has that name, because he's the only one who has ever existed forever. That's the Father and the Son. And the spirit that God gives us, his very essence, the seed of eternity, he gives that portion of his spirit to us, is a piece of eternity already in us that has always existed. God didn't make the spirit start existing right away. It was part of his own nature, which is eternal. That's an amazing thing. And Christ wants at least us to have an idea of what he's doing with us. So, Christ surrounded that last Passover with the Statement to love each other. And let's read it at least three times. He mentioned it on that occasion. Let's go to chapter 13 of the book of John. Chapter 13 of the book of John. And it says, verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. We already spoke about this before. The only way we can do that is letting Christ, who comes to dwell in us, manifest his love to our brethren. We cannot produce the type of love he can produce only himself, but he comes to us. And we put to death our old man, We deny ourselves, take up the cross, and put to death our carnality. He starts manifesting himself through us. And that's a commandment to take the Passover, to be one with each other and one with Jesus Christ. That you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. We already saw the the essential part of forgiveness to take the Passover in a worthy manner. Then he repeats that in chapter 15, in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And in verse 17, he repeats it again. Remember, this is during the last Passover. So he's teaching us, you have to be one with each other, And you have to be one with me if you are discerning my body and my blood. Verse 17 of chapter 15, These things I command you, that you love one another. I think the most practical way we can explain this, what it means is go to First Corinthians 13. And we see a succinct explanation of what real brotherly love is and what God expects from us, brethren. Let's look at it. Chapter 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels who have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging Symbol I mean a lot of sound, but empty inside, no real substance. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all the faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long. Brethren, this takes a lot of self-denial. To suffer long the weaknesses of our brethren that have also to endure our own weaknesses, but to have that attitude of suffering long, it takes self-denial. That means putting to death the old man, and let Christ manifest Himself through us, because He suffers long for us. He wants us to be merciful, as He is merciful, and the Father. But it takes self-denial. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. So this is how he can be manifested through us to our brethren. So our love suffers long. That's self-denial, and that's how we are crucified with Christ, and we don't live, but he lives in us, like the apostle Paul said, and is kind. It's not always easy to be kind. And we have to be ready to deny ourselves when the carnal mind wants to be expressed through us and put it to death. And let kindness instead of other attitudes manifest and then block the presence of Christ in us so that there is no real unity. Love does not envy. You know, the devil envied the father and... In Christ, the Pharisees envied Jesus Christ, the brothers of Joseph envied Joseph, and you know the results of envy. Who can stand before envy? That's in the Proverbs. We have to put it to death. And when those thoughts come to our mind, we should rejoice when someone else is exalted or someone else produces amazing fruit in his life or has success, should be A joy for all because he's part of the same body. And that's the focus we have to have. Not competition, but the glory of God that he's blessing his children. Love does not parade itself. Deny ourselves. We have that tendency. I have it, brethren. It's not puffed up. Pride. Pride stinks in the presence of God, brethren, because it was the first sin ever committed So he doesn't want any of that in his children. And we prove that we're not proud, for example, as the examples I gave, when we forgive those that have offended us and we are humble enough to ask for forgiveness to those, from those that we have offended. Does not behave rudely. Sometimes our reaction is that way. But that's what the world calls in emotional intelligence that the word of God calls self-control do not react on the spur of the moment come heel down take a hold of yourself and let wisdom manifest itself that it will be Christ in us Do not seek his own the Christ didn't come to seek his own he came to die for us brethren he's not provoked that means he doesn't get angry this is a difficult one. Sometimes we're allowed to get angry, but not to sin. That's an important thing to study. It's when we do not offend people, or we don't insult people, but it's a, a real cause for, out of zeal for God. Thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. It has to do with patience again. Self-denial. Believes all things. Gives the benefit of the doubt. Hopes all things. God is powerful to make things better and to change people. Endures all things. Love never fails. And you know it's the greater of us. That's important for us to examine ourselves to see if we are in harmony With the body of Christ, because we will be eaten of the same bread, even if it's just pieces of it, it's the same bread, it's the body of Christ. So, brethren, we have a task to do, and we need to think about being one with Jesus Christ and having and develop this intimacy with Him, which is a marvelous thing. The Apostle John, frankly, reveals to us a dimension of Jesus Christ that the other Gospels do not reveal. He reveals to us the inward life of Christ. He continually speaks of how our Lord Jesus Christ was connected continually with the Father. The other Gospels might mention it, but John brings it time after time. Christ said, I'm not the one who does the works. Is the Father who dwells in me. The words I speak are not my words, are the words of the Father. The Father is in me, and I am in him. We are one. And they took stones to stone him when He declared that. So over and over, John reveals to us a dimension of Jesus Christ that is crucial for us. And that's what God brought, brought it probably as the last gospel to reveal to us that intimacy that Jesus Christ wants to have with each one of us, and that will bring to us the zeal and the desire to cleanse ourselves even for sins that we don't know that are sins or for transgressions, and to examine ourselves. So when we take that bread on that night, we know this is the body of Jesus Christ broken for us. It means also our healing, the physical healing. By his stripes, we are healed. That's very important to keep in mind. Never lose mind of that. He's our healer. I'm the eternal, your healer. And Christ carried upon himself our diseases and our sicknesses like is written in chapter 8 of the book of, of Matthew. But also, that bread means also that Christ came to prepare a wife that will be one with him. That we have this profound intimacy, brethren. We are offered that opportunity to have a profound intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and the Father. And he expresses that in the most sublime way in the last, in the chapter chapter 17 of the book of John. And many more things should be said, but I, I would kind of presented here as a synthesis of that profound principle. He says he wants to be one with us, and the Passover represents that. That bread that we eat is his body, and it becomes part of us. Physically, he wants us to understand that. You take that bread, you assimilate it, it becomes part of you. Christ wants to be exactly the same thing with us in the spirit that we be one with him. I love the expression of Elijah that Elisha also repeated. He says, the eternal in whose presence I am. You know, he was able to keep that state of mind, brethren, which our society and this civilization is trying to steal from us by any means continual distraction continual distraction brethren i used to live in the mountains i remember brethren when when you develop that marvelous that that sense of marvel of seeing the creation of god is not mon- is not monotony it's not you are seen in the trees, the birds, the wind, the blue sky, the green mountains, the narrow paths, the cattle. You see the Creator there through His creation. But we, are, we live in such an artificial world, in continual distraction, brethren. And remember, there is a commandment to keep ourselves without spot of this world. And wherever we walk, brethren, even if you don't watch pornography, but you turn on your computer, there are temptations for the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, which is the motor, the engine of this society. That's what was in the beginning for Adam and Eve, and today is still the engine that moves this world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's all there, all the time. And James says, keep yourselves. We, the true religion is to, to visit the widows and the orphans in their tribulations and to keep ourselves unspotted from this world. And sometimes there is so much of that, you go to the supermarket, there it is. Temptations to attract the lust of the eyes. You go to see a movie, there it is. You turn on the TV, there it is. You turn on the Internet, there it is. You go to an airport, there it is. And it seems sometimes, you know, we get too much used to that, and it might be a way to sin by ignorance, that we keep our eyes maybe too much on certain things that we should not, to keep ourselves far from the lust of the eyes. And you are we get so used to it in this world that, we lose discernment. I remember when I lived in the mountains there in San Diego and I was raising my son. He was small. I have some members of the church living there, two or three of them. When they needed a place, they would send them to Mario there in his house in the mountains. And I enjoy that having the brethren there. Say, well, oh, let's watch this movie. And I said, is that movie appropriate for my son who is Nine or ten years old. Oh yeah, there's nothing wrong with it, brethren. I remember start playing that movie. The vocabulary of that movie, I I couldn't stand it. And then they start showing that even my son was ten years old. He didn't like this by the images they were showing. And they say, "Oh, there's nothing wrong with it." We get so used to that we lose discernment. We might be sinning by ignorance. And being spotted by this world without knowing it because it's all over the place. No, not ever. I think has not been a society like this that's so much surrounded by the temptations to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of, of life. So we need to be in guard, brethren, so we can keep this communion with Jesus Christ continually in us bringing every thought captive to his obedience and being aware of his presence in us. Not just maybe once in a while, but a continual communion. That's what he had with the Father and what he expects us to have with him. An intimate relationship, profound relationship. Uh, Before I read this psalm, I, I would love to, I like to read sometimes to see how David expressed that communion he had with Jesus Christ in many parts. One of them is in Psalm 36. Let's look at it. They were able, these men, you know, they live in the desert. He had to live in the desert many many months and years. There was nothing to, to distract themselves, you know, nothing in the desert to get distracted with. That's what Moses learned from God, 40 years in the desert. And David, how many years, fleeing in the desert. And Job the Baptist, growing in the desert. And Elijah going into the desert. And Christ going into the desert. Where they could have communion with God. And we are so used to distractions that we get find ourselves in solitude. And I remember some people that went to visit me in the the mountains. They would get desperate after two, two days. They said, it's kind of boring around here. They were desperate to go back to the city and get distracted continually. They couldn't stand silence and solitude, which is not silence. There was the music of the birds and and the wind. It was a magnificent scenery of the mountains, but it was too boring for them. But here we see these men that were able to develop a profound relationship with God. And I I love this scripture here in chapter 36 of the book of Psalms. In verse 7, David writes, he says... 36, verse 7, how precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. Remember that the house of God is our own body. Brethren, where Christ lives, and the rivers of living waters will flow from the heart of those that receive the Spirit. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness. It's just beautiful. And then Jesus Christ, he concludes my first Passover. I'm going to read. For you, brethren, which you know very well, it is good to remember the desire he had for that perfect harmony and communion with his wife, with us. In chapter 17, verse 20 of the book of John. Chapter 17, verse 20. I do not pray for these alone. So he's praying for us right here but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Here we are. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Brethren, this is profound. That's what he presented like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. The new covenant written in our hearts and minds that's what it represents, that blood. And we could speak a lot about that, but we don't have time now. That they also may be one with us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. So he's raising us to his own rank of glory, although he is greater than the Father too, of course. That they may be One, just as we are one. Only when we practice love as we already read it. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. He's speaking of the marriage of the Lamb, when we will be as he is with a glorious body, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. Me, And I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it, that the love which you, which you love me, may be in them, and I in them. I wish you, brethren, a magnificent Passover celebration. May the peace of God be with all of you.